Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our first reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 19, starting to read at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lot for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. History is littered with examples of Humans struggling for power, nations fighting nations, politicians fighting for the top spot, office politics, families playing tug of war with one another. As humans, we're so very good at fighting with one another over power. As we come to John's accounts of Jesus' death on the cross, it begins with a power struggle. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate is mocking Jesus. He has a sign written not just in Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews of that day, but also in Latin, which was the language of the Roman Empire, but also in Greek, which was the language of the rest of the world. It's the modern-day equivalent of posting the news on every social media platform going. He wants everyone to know that he's putting this so-called king to death. He's mocking Jesus because this king of the Jews is currently dying one of the most excruciating deaths ever devised by the human mind. Death by crucifixion took hours, 
sometimes days. The victim would be lifted high so that everyone else could see them. It was a place of exposure and of public humiliation as everyone gathered around to watch. It was designed to maximize shame. So horrendous, so degrading was crucifixion that Roman citizens could not be crucified except under the most extreme circumstances. And so you can hear the mock, can't you? (laughs) Some king this who dies on a cross. Of course, the Jews don't like the sign. They want the world to realize that Jesus is not their king. They don't want to be associated with that one on the cross. And so they ask Pilate to change the sign. But he won't. Pilate won't miss this chance to play power games with the Jews. But even as Pilate and the Jews are are squabbling over some words written down on a sign above Jesus, the, the camera pans around to a surprising direction. Verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. We might wonder why the soldiers. In John's gospel, soldiers have hardly been one of the key players in John's account of the life of Jesus. So why at this moment of his death does a camera pan to these soldiers at the foot of the cross? Look again, verse 24. Let's not tear it. They said to one another, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. The scripture that John is talking about is Psalm 22. It was written around 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus by one of the great kings of Israel, King David. And in Psalm 22, we have one of the most extraordinary and graphic accounts of someone being crucified. And I quote from Psalm 22. David writes, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. A pack of villains encircles me. They, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. And then the psalm continues with the verse quoted in John's Gospel, verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. As Pilate and the Jews play power games over here about some words written on a sign, John is showing us that over here, some ancient words written a thousand years ago are coming to pass. 
And it's all about the one behind them on the cross being mocked for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Which means that over 1,000 years, as empires have been brought up and empires have crumbled, as kings have come and kings have gone, this ancient prophecy about a king being crucified is coming to pass as Jesus dies. He's in control of every detail. Even as he dies in weakness being mocked, he is bringing about this little detail of a garment not being torn to fulfill the ancient prediction of a king being crucified. He is the king of the Jews. No, he is the king of the world. He is the king of history. Ironic, isn't it? That Pilate's sign, sneering though it was, actually had it right. Here is the king of the Jews. Here is the king of history. Of course, many people are like the Jews or Pilate, playing power games and missing who the true king of history really is. But Psalm 22 continues. The quote comes in a context. God hears the cry of his anointed king in his distress. God rescues his king. And the psalm concludes, Psalm 22, verse 7, all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The king on the cross Yes, the bit about the clothing has come to pass, but one day the bit about all nations bowing down before him, well, that too will come to pass at just the right time. He is the king of history. We're going to have a moment now for quiet reflection. Perhaps we might want to reflect on the irony of human power struggles when actually, there is only one king of history. Or perhaps we might want to reflect on the wonder that this king of history would use his awesome power in order to bring about his death. Or perhaps we might want to reflect on how we use whatever power we have. Are we more like Jesus? or the squabbling world. A moment for quiet reflection. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we see the power struggle taking place between Pilate and the Jews, we confess today that so often 
we are far too concerned about our own status or getting our own way. We are sorry for the times when we have misused the power we have to serve ourselves and not others. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the true king of history, with more than enough power to ensure these ancient promises came to pass. A king who used his power to ensure that he did indeed die the death that we deserve. Who used his power not in self-service, but in the service of others. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. We pray that you would increasingly make us into a people who imitate him and use power the way he did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our second reading continues in John's Gospel, chapter 19, picking up again at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. As we reflect on John's account of the death of Jesus, I want us to keep remembering that above the cross hangs that mocking sign, the King of the Jews. We saw just a moment ago that he is the King of the Jews. In fact, he is the King of history, fulfilling ancient prophecy, the king before whom one day every person will bow. But as John describes the final moments of Jesus, the the camera turns away from the soldiers around the foot of the cross to another group gathered to watch this death. And this time, I want us to see that Jesus is the king of love. Look at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Madeline. It's hard to imagine just how distressing it must have been for Jesus' mother to be stood there at the foot of the cross watching her son die. Of course, this excruciating moment of death is the pinnacle of a life of hostility against her son. For years, he'd been marginalized and criticized and undermined by the leaders and the crowds, questioned and doubted. But, but now, it, it had reached its climax, this hostility, leading to his death. And to know that your son was mocked and shunned and criticized and, and now murdered, it must have been horrendous. Every parent wants their child to grow up in this world, to be loved 
and cherished and accepted and to have a, a, a good life. But here, Jesus' mother watches her son die a terrible death. But even as Jesus hangs in agony on the cross, look at what he says to his mother, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I know in my life when the pressure comes on me, when I feel stressed or up against it, what happens to me is that my horizons close in around me. I, I become inward looking. I, I marshal my energies and resources in and around to look after myself. I find it very hard to look after others. I wonder if I'm not alone. But Jesus, enduring the most remarkable agony, the, the, the physical agony of, of the nails through his hands and the sense of suffocation as he died hanging on a cross, the emotional agony of knowing his death was coming and that his friends had betrayed him, the spiritual agony as he bore God's wrath on the cross for the sins of the world. What agony he is under in this moment. And yet he looks out from himself. He sees his mother. He sees the other disciple, almost certainly John, and he sets up a new family. You see, back in the day before the welfare state, before pensions and social security, your children were your safety net in old age. Jesus knew he wouldn't be around to care for his mom. And so in asking John to come and look after his mother, he's basically setting up care for her in her old age. And so as Jesus dies, he is the king of love. And I think this provision is more than just food and shelter. I say that because of one surprising detail in this scene. We know that Jesus had other brothers. He wasn't the only child. Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew 13, tells us that Mary had also James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So in this moment of agony, why couldn't Jesus have gone to the other sons and said, well, why don't you look after your mom? Why go to someone outside the family, to, to John, not a family member? Well, back in John 7, we were told that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him at least not at that time. And I think it's telling that in John's account of this crucifixion, he doesn't once mention his other brothers. They don't appear to be around. We can't be certain, but they don't, they're not mentioned. And so I think it's a safe assumption to assume that they aren't on this scene. Not at this stage. She has no family who are standing by Jesus and by her in this moment of ridicule and shame. Only John is there, the outsider, And what we're seeing here is something that Jesus promised would happen, that families would be divided because of him. Some would believe in him and some wouldn't. 
He would be a dividing wall, a, a source of shame to some, a source of joy to others. Mary, all alone in this moment, as her son dies, mocked and ridiculed. She's all alone, not just needing food and shelter, but she's shamed. The mother of a criminal. Nowhere to go in society. But now a new home. John, who's with Jesus, who believes in Jesus, he'll bring her in. He'll provide her comfort rather than shame. And it's true, isn't it, that in God's new family, those who trust in Jesus, sometimes it's biological, sometimes it's not, but it is a home where we are accepted and welcomed, even if the world outside mocks and is hostile. But here's the big point. Even as Jesus dies on the cross, he is loving others providing for his mother practically, but also dealing with her shame, giving her a new place to belong. Again, a moment for quiet reflection. Perhaps a chance to reflect on how Jesus is both the king of history with all power, but also the king of love. He cares for individual people. What a combination that is. Or perhaps we might want to reflect on this. Jesus loves. He loves people. He loves me. He loves you. He didn't go to the cross out of duty or because he was being forced into it. He went for loving reasons. What difference does it make to know that Jesus actually loves you? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the extraordinary love and kindness of Jesus. A love that is not warped or tainted by his great power. A love that persists even under the most severe trial. Father, we thank you that Jesus really is the king of love. And Father, we pray that the love of Jesus would shape how we love each other. That within this church, we would be quick to be family with one another, providing practical care, a place of belonging and acceptance when so often the world around us has no time for Christians. 
Father, help us to use whatever power we have to love this way. And even when the pressure comes on us, help us not to turn in on ourselves, but to keep looking outwards. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our third reading continues in John's Gospel, chapter 19, picking up now at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Pilate may have mocked Jesus with his sign, the King of the Jews. But as happened so often in John's gospel, people spoke more truth than they realized. We've seen that Jesus is the king. He's the king of history. He's a king of love. And finally this afternoon, we'll see he is the king who saves. We come to the end. Jesus asks for a drink. He is given wine vinegar. They use a sponge on a stick to reach up to Jesus. And then verse 30. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. For the Jewish leaders who've been campaigning for this moment for years, this must have felt like victory. He is finished, he's dead. For Pilate, worried about a rebellion, mocking this so-called king, he must have thought he'd won. No army had arrived. No final rescue plan had emerged. This so-called king had indeed died. Job done. But look again. Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. No, he says, it 
is finished. It's a word that a master craftsman might use after hours and hours of work on some fine piece of furniture. And finally, when he's done, he steps back and says, it is finished. Or a father asks a son to help with some chores around the house, uh, maybe wash the car, cut the grass, and the son goes out and washes the car, cuts the grass, and comes back to dad and says, dad, it's finished. That's the sense of the word here. Back in John 17, as Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father in front of his disciples, he said, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. This final cry on the cross, not a cry of failure, it's a cry of accomplishment. It is done. The work is finished. And even in this moment, Jesus is still in control. He is the one who gives up his breath as he dies. He has finished the job he's been given. What job is that? What work is accomplished? Well, what John goes on to show us, I think, is just stunning. Verse 31. Now, it it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be the special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies to be left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who was crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. At this point, we don't yet know why that detail matters. But John is not finished yet. He goes on to describe how a soldier thrusts a spear into the side of Jesus. The point is to confirm that he is definitely dead. John, as a witness, is watching. He can confirm, I've seen it with my eyes. That man did die. He wants us to be confident a death has occurred. No swoon, a real death. And John is at pains to labor this point because of verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Seven times in just a few chapters, John has told us that all this happens at the time of the Passover celebrations. And that quote is taken straight from the, the first Passover back in Exodus 12. You may well know that that first Passover involved a dreadful moment in Israel's history when God warned them that he would pass over the land in judgment and all firstborn sons would die unless a lamb was slain. One lamb for each house and the blood of that lamb would be painted over the door frames of the house and the angel of the Lord would pass over every house where that blood was seen and the firstborn son would live. Back in Exodus, there was this funny detail that when the lamb is killed, none of the bones of the lamb should be broken. No reason given, no explanation. But thousands of years later, 
we now understand the link, don't we? Because on this Passover that John's describing, Jesus is the Passover lamb whose bones were not broken as he dies. I often think of that firstborn son in the house on the night of the Passover back in Exodus. You can imagine him, can't you? After dinner saying to his dad, Dad, um, have you done it yet? You know, that lamb, have you, have you actually killed it? Have you taken the blood and put it on the door frames? Because, you know, if that lamb is not dead, if that blood has not been painted, then that son is going to die. You can imagine the father saying, son, it's finished. I've done it. The lamb has died. And that's the kind of point John is showing us here. He's underlining for us all those thousands of years later that this Passover lamb, he definitely did die. His work was finished of dying as a substitute for us and with no bones broken, confirming he is the lamb slain for us. And so as Pilate mocks Jesus, the king of the Jews, John is showing us he is the king who saves. It is finished because he did die for all those who trust in his blood. There is a passing over. God's judgment lands on Jesus, not on us. He takes away our sin. We are free. We are forgiven. It is finished. I wish we had more time to explore the other quote from Zechariah. It is stunning stuff. My time is gone. But in this final moment of quiet, perhaps we might want to reflect on this wonderful news that Jesus has finished the work he was given because he has died as our Passover lamb, which means God's wrath has been taken from us and we are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary obedience of your son right to the end, completing the great work of salvation, dying as the true Passover lamb to take away our sin. Father, help us to never take for granted his extraordinary sacrifice for us. And Father, please help us to never doubt that his death is enough. This Easter, may we rejoice in our King who saves, in our King who brings us forgiveness and pardon and restored relationship, in our King who has done everything that we might enjoy eternal life with you. In his name we pray. Amen.